Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 18. Today we will be reading Book 5, Chapters 10-14 through 14 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. All right, well, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So, as we've mentioned, Book 5 is is replete with travel adventures, and at the end of Book 5, these last chapters, Augustine makes his final move from Rome to Milan. As you might remember from yesterday, St. Augustine moved from Carthage to Rome, seeking to find a little more happiness, a little more satisfaction with his teaching and and with his life, but Rome proved not to be able to provide that. So he moves to Milan, Um, and it's in Milan that he contacts or encounters St. Ambrose for the first time. So we'll talk about St. Ambrose a bit and the relationship that ensues between St. Augustine and St. Ambrose. So... Let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 10. Therefore you led me to recovery from that illness, and thus for the time healed in body the son of your handmaid, so that he might live and allow you to bestow upon him a better and more abiding health. And even then in Rome I joined with those deceiving and deceived saints, not only their disciples, among whom was numbered the man in whose house I had fallen sick and recovered, but also those whom they call the elect. For I still thought that it was not we who sinned, but rather some other nature, I know not what, that sinned in us. It delighted my pride to be free from blame, and when I had done any evil, not to confess that I had done any, so that you might heal my soul, for it had sinned against you. Rather, I loved to excuse it and to accuse who knows what else that was supposedly within me, though it was not I. But in truth, it was holy I, and my impiety had divided me against myself. And how much more incurable was such sin, for I did not judge myself to be a sinner. How much more appalling the iniquity, that I would rather have had you, O God Almighty, be vanquished within me to my destruction, rather than for me to be vanquished by you to my salvation. You had not yet set a guard over my mouth and a door of safekeeping around my lips, so that my heart might not turn aside to wicked speech and make excuses for sin with men who work iniquity. Thus I still numbered myself among their elect. However, no longer looking to advance in learning that false doctrine, I now held such teachings more laxly and carelessly, having resolved to remain content with them so long as I did not find anything better. 
Now, the thought came to me that the wisest philosophers were those who are called the academics, for they held that men should doubt everything, declaring that no truth can be grasped by man. Not yet understanding even what they meant, I was fully convinced that they thought what was commonly attributed to them. However, I freely and openly discouraged my host's excessive confidence in the fables that fill the book of the Manichaeans. Still, though, I lived in closer friendship with them than others who did not hold to this heresy. I did not maintain it with my former eagerness, but nonetheless my intimacy with that sect, which had many secret adherents in Rome, slowed me from looking elsewhere, especially since I thought I could not attain the truth from which they had turned me aside in your church, O Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things visible and invisible. And I thought it unbecoming to think that you would have the shape of human flesh, bounded by the limits of our various body parts. Rather, when I wished to reflect on my God, I did not know what to bring to mind other than a kind of shapeless, bodily mass, for anything incorporeal seemed to me to be in fact nothing at all. And this was the greatest and perhaps unique cause of my inevitable error. Thus, I likewise believed that evil was some kind of bodily substance, having its own kind of foul and hideous bulk, whether it be thick and dense, which they called earth, or thin and delicate, like air, which they imagined to be a kind of malignant mind creeping throughout the earth. And since a kind of piety, such as it was, made me believe that the good God never created any evil nature, I conceived that there were two such masses, mutually opposed to each other, both without boundaries, though the evil was narrower than the most expansive mass of the good. And from this pestilent starting point flowed all my other sacrilegious conceits. For when my mind turned to the Catholic faith, it was driven back, for that faith was not what I thought it to be. And I thought that I was more reverent if I believed in you, my God, to whom your mercies make confession out of my mouth, were an unbounded mass, at least on all sides that were not opposed to evil, where I was forced to say that you were bounded, yes, more reverent than if I were to believe that you were bounded upon all sides by a human body. And it seemed better to me to believe that you created no evil, which I ignorantly thought was not merely some kind of substance, indeed a bodily reality. For if I could not conceive of what mind would be, unless it were a kind of very small body, diffused throughout various spaces, yes, better to believe that the nature of evil, such as I conceived of it then, had come from you. Indeed, I believe that our Savior himself, your only begotten, had for our salvation stretched forth, as it were, from the mass of your light-filled substance, so that I could believe nothing about him except what I could imagine in my vanity. Thus, thinking that his nature was like this, I could not imagine it being born of the Virgin Mary without mingling with flesh, and I could not see that which I thus imagined could be thus mingled and not defiled. Therefore, I feared to believe that he was born in the flesh, lest I be forced to believe he was defiled by the flesh. Now your spiritual ones will gently and lovingly smile upon me if they read these words, but this is what I thought at the time. Chapter 11. Moreover, I did not think there was a defense for what the Manichaeans critiqued in your scriptures. However, at times I did truly wish to discuss these points with someone who knew those books well, so that I could test what he thought about them. For the words of a man named Helpidius had begun to stir me even in Carthage as I heard him speak and dispute face to face with the Manichaeans there, drawing from the scriptures that were not readily refuted. Indeed, the Manichaeans' own answers seemed weak to me, and they preferred to give this answer privately, not in public. They held that the scriptures of the New Testament had been corrupted by some unknown person or persons who wished to graft the law of the Jews upon the Christian faith, but they never themselves produced any uncorrupted copies of the text. 
Nonetheless, still thinking that all things were bodily, I remained on the whole weighed down by the two masses, which suffocated me, so to speak. And there underneath them, grasping for the air that is your truth, I could not breathe it pure and untainted. Chapter 12. In the meanwhile, I began diligently to take up my very reason for coming to Rome, namely to teach rhetoric. I began by gathering some pupils to whom and through whom I started to become known in Rome. But behold, here in this city I experienced new offenses that were not heard of in Africa. True, the subvertings committed by profligate young men were not to be found here, as I had been told. However, I was suddenly told about how a number of youths would plot together so as to change from one master to another in order to avoid paying wages to the first. Untrustworthy men, they loved money and scorned justice. My heart hated them, though not with a perfect hatred, for perhaps I hated them more because I suffered at their hands rather than for their completely lawless deeds. In truth, such men are base, prostituting themselves out against you, loving fleeting and silly things and shameful ways of making money which soils the hand that grasps it. They clasped the fleeting world and despised you who abide steadfastly, recalling and forgiving the adulterous soul of man when it returns to you. And now I hate such depraved and crooked people, though I love them if they straighten their ways and prefer instead of money the learning that they acquire by it, and in preference to such learning, you, O God, the truth and fullness of assured good and purest peace. But at that time I wished not to suffer at the hands of evil men, rather than wishing that they be good for your sake. Chapter 13 Therefore, when word came from Milan to Rome to the prefect of the city asking for a rhetoric teacher in their city to be sent at the public expense, I applied for this position, proposing that Symmachus, who was the prefect of the city at the time, would set before me some subject for discussion. Indeed, I did so through those very persons who were intoxicated by Manichaean vanities, from which I would be freed precisely by going to Milan, though neither of us knew this at the time. I succeeded and went to Milan, to Ambrose the bishop, your devout servant, known throughout the world as being numbered among the best of men. His eloquent speaking plentifully dispensed to your people the flower of your wheat, the gladness of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unbeknownst to me, you were leading me to him. The man of God received me like a father and showed me episcopal kindness upon my arrival. From that moment, I began to love him, at first not as a teacher of the truth, which I had absolutely no hope of finding in your church, but rather as a person who showed kindness to me. And I diligently listened to him preaching to the people, not with the right intention, but instead, as it were, testing his eloquence to see if it really deserved the fame that it had received, or rather was greater or lesser than was said. Thus I hung on to the words attentively, but remained a kind of careless and scornful onlooker regarding the meaning of his words. I was delighted with the sweetness of his discourse, which was more sophisticated, though less cheerful and soothing than Faustus's words. But there could be no comparison between the matters spoken of by the two men, for Faustus wandered about amid Manichaean delusions, while Ambrose taught the most wholesome message of salvation. But salvation is far from the wicked, among whom I was numbered at that time. Standing before him, I was little by little, though unconsciously, drawing closer to it. Chapter 14 Although I did not bother to learn the subject matter he spoke of, paying attention instead only to how he said it, for that empty care was all that was left for me, for I saw no way open for man to come to you, nonetheless, along with the words which I loved, there also came the realities that I neglected, for I could not separate them from one another. 
And while I opened my heart to admit how eloquently he spoke, there also entered therein the truths that he spoke, though only gradually. For first of all, these matters now seem to be defensible, and the Catholic faith, which I thought could not be defended against the Manichaean's objections, now seemed able to be maintained without feelings of shame. This was especially true after I heard this or that Old Testament passage resolved, often by noting how it was a type or figure for things in the New Testament passages that had spiritually slain me when I understood them literally. After hearing a number of such spiritual explanations of these books, I now saw that my inability to believe lay in the fact that no answer could be given to those who hated and scorned the law and the prophets. But I still did not see that the Catholic way must be followed because it numbered among its adherents learned men, people who could at length present a defense that was not absurd, nor did what I then hold seem worthy of condemnation, for both sides seemed able to offer equally good defenses." For the Catholic cause did not seem vanquished to me, though it was still not victorious either. Thus, I earnestly turned my mind to see if I could discover some way to prove the falsehood of the Manichaeans. If only I could conceive of a spiritual substance, all of their strongholds would be laid waste and wholly cast out of my mind. But I could not do so. Nonetheless, as regards this world and its makeup, along with the whole of nature reached by our bodily senses, I still judged that the tenets of the philosophers were much more probably true. So then, like the academics, as they were said to be, doubting all things and wavering between all opinions, I did at least settle on the decision that I had to abandon the Manichaeans. For I judged that even while in such doubt, I could not continue in that sect, seeing how I preferred to its teachings those of the philosophers." However, since I lack the saving name of Christ, I utterly refuse to commit the cure of my sick soul to them. Therefore, I determined for the time being to be a catechumen in the Catholic Church, to which I had been commended by my parents, until something certain should draw upon me, by which I might know where I should steer my course. All right, so... Augustine, still unsatisfied with the Manichaeans, he's still living with Manichaeans in Milan, but he's not happy. And yet, at the same time, he still doesn't turn straight to Catholicism. He has he mentioned some issues with his issues with the incarnation in particular. So if you remember, the Manichaeans are dualists who believe in sort of the evil of the physical world and the goodness of the spiritual world. So there's there's issues with believing that God takes on flesh. Um, so he's still thinking of God's only in spiritual terms, uh, but, you know, he's unhappy in Rome, moves to Milan, and uh, encounters St. Ambrose. So those are some big overviews. But Father Gregory, let's start with his moving to Milan, and then we can talk about St. Ambrose. Yeah. So for those of you who are familiar with the geography of the Mediterranean Sea and surrounding countries, you know that he was in present-day Algeria, or like between present-day Algeria and Tunisia, and moving between Tagast and Carthage. And then he comes across the Mediterranean Sea, and you can think of like, what's what's in between those things? Well, you got like Malta on the one side, you got Sicily, and then he arrives in the middle of the Italian peninsula in Rome. And then Milan is way up at the top of modern day Italy, going on towards the mountains before you would get to like Switzerland in the middle, or France over to the left, or I guess Austria over to the right. So he's making his way north. And in arriving in Milan, he arrives in a very different atmosphere and a very different culture because Rome 
would have been, you know, like a one, one kind of center, as it were, of the empire in Milan, a very different kind of center. Well, how very different, I suppose, is known to those who lived then and the historians who have studied the fact. But he's, he's going from like very different parts in the Roman Empire, each with their own, you know, kind of cultures. And it's interesting, you know, think about this in terms of our own lives. Sometimes a change in place and a change in culture can be an occasion for conversion. Because when we're in one place, we kind of think about everyone who's there and all the relationships that we have and maybe the practices or habits that we've accumulated as kind of fixtures. Maybe you come from a small town in an out-of-the-way state and you think to yourself, like, life will always just be this way and not otherwise. And then maybe you move uh, or maybe you take a vacation and it's an occasion for a mind-broadening experience. Not necessarily to say that we need to see the world in order to be holy, uh, but it is to say that when you shake things up, sometimes it calls into question what you thought you knew or what you thought was established. And in St. Augustine's life, he finds himself attracted by, you know, St. Ambrose in Milan, but there's, there's a whole kind of culture in Milan which would have been foreign to him previously. Uh, and we'll hear later about the monastic life which exists there at the at the city's limit. So yeah, I think it's a it's a precious time insofar as his heart uh, kind of being chewed up and spit out by his yeah just disappointment with the Manichaean sect is now being offered back to him by a renewal or a refreshment in this new setting. There you go. Okay, so before we talk about Saint Augustine meeting Saint Ambrose, maybe let's talk about Saint Ambrose a little bit. Give a little kind of context for for the man Saint Ambrose. Um, St. Ambrose was bishop of Milan in like the mid to late 4th century, so around 374 to about just before the turn of the 5th century, so a few years, 397-ish. Um, he was a Roman governor of the same area before he became bishop and was known um, in his episcopal rule for fighting against um, the heresies of Arius, of paganism, of of other things. You know, he's he's known to be a great sort of bishop and, and leader and promoter of the true faith. Um, there's some quirks, at least compared to, um, you know, other speakers and, and orators and, and St. Augustine encounters these and, and is kind of confused at first, but drawn in by them. We'll talk about them. But yeah, I guess uh, what else to say about St. Ambrose, Father Gregory? Yeah, I mean, you covered the basic details and we'll hear more about him in book six. And I think that you know, he's, he's a sneaky character, not in the sense that he himself is sneaky, but he can be a sneaky character here in the Confessions because we've always heard St. Augustine and St. Ambrose mentioned together in the same breath, or often enough. Uh, and yet St. Ambrose is not very present in these pages. Still, you know, we revere him or we venerate him alongside St. Augustine and St. Jerome and St. Gregory the Great as the four great Latin doctors of antiquity. Uh, so he occupies a huge place in the church's life and in the church's expression of her faith. But here in the Confessions, he's, yeah, he's mentioned very few, but those mentions are potent. <laughs> yeah. So St. Augustine mentions that he's not first drawn in by St. Ambrose's teaching, um, but by St. Ambrose's kindness to him. And I think that plays, that or not plays, it does play a significant role because it draws St. Augustine to him, but but also um, bears significant witness to the Christian life of, of witnessing to the faith and not saying that like, oh, if we're nice to people, people will become Catholics. That's not the case. But that it, there's an immediate sort of recognition of that for which St. Augustine has been searching. And, you know, he says he's searching for wisdom and I believe him <laughs> that he's searching for wisdom, but, but there, you know, he's also searching for, for love, to be loved, to ultimately to be loved by God. But there, it seems 
seems to me that in his first encounters with St. Ambrose, that that sort of mediated in some way that hadn't been before. You know, it's not the teaching, though he'd been searching for that, you know, as we just wrapped up with Faustus, but it's his, it's his kindness, it's his charity, it's his sort of paternal and, and priestly sort of care for St. Augustine that, that is contagious in, in the best sort of way. So that catches me each time I read it, that it's, it's not the eloquence of St. Ambrose, though he's a wise and learned man, but it's his kindness, it's his goodness. Um, and it's the sort of mark that charity is the mark of, of the Christian, so it stands out for us. Yeah, and I think that for us, there's, well, there's a difference between being kind to people because we think that we should be kind to people and being kind to people because we see in people something that merits a kind of kindness. And I think that this is a big, yeah, this is just a big Christian difference because you have all kinds of secular or humanistic types out there who are like, kindness is just the most important thing. Um, which, yeah, no, Jesus is the most important thing. And our response to that is to know him and to love him and to be converted by him. But I don't think that we should pretend to be kind when we're not. I think that we should try to be kind, but there should be a kind of sincerity or an honesty at the heart of that effort. Because otherwise, um, like I am repulsed. I am, yeah, I am not attracted by a kind of forced kindness because it always comes across as like patronizing or condescending, even without our realizing it. So I think that when we, when we go before the other and we seek to, you know, adduce his good or we seek to kind of be a midwife, as it were, of the truth in the individual, uh, we're not putting on a kind of false kindness. We're asking the Lord for his kindness. And typically how he administers that is by revealing to us something good in the other individual or something in need in the other individual or whatever it is, you know, but like a real genuine discovery of who the other person is and how we can respond to that well. I describe this by just using the simple expression falling in love with. For me, it's not like it's not like a man or woman type thing. Like when we were on the communal together, like I'd be talking to this 80 year old guy from Quebec who I couldn't understand for a variety of reasons. And I just like, within a few minutes, I just fell in love with this guy. I was like, oh man, I kind of like you a lot. And it wasn't necessarily because he was a great and excellent and holy person, but it's because in a, you know he had a story to tell. And I felt like at a certain level, I was part of the telling of that story, if just for this one moment. And I think that, that kindness that comes from something like that has, it stands a chance. Whereas kindness where it's like, well, I am a Christian, so I will be kind to this individual. Hello, you are the object of my kindness. It's like, oh my gosh, I just want to run and hide. So yeah, Ambrose has that grace and he's able to mediate it to Augustine, which is which is a gift for us who are downstream of it. Yeah, St. Augustine picks up on it very quickly. It's It's more of a as you've described, you've experienced, I'm sure those listening have experienced, but it's it's less of a sort of manufactured or false thing or even kind of thing to be studied and more of a thing to be experienced by encountering another person who has, in the end, as St. Ambrose does, you know, your ultimate good, your the pursuit of Christ at the heart of what he's doing and what he's searching for. So yeah, there's, there's a beauty and a profundity to it. And that beauty and profundity is not lost in St. Augustine because it's at this time that we learn um, that he he decides to become a catechumen, somebody who is going to pursue baptism. So uh, we've said in earlier episodes when we've discussed baptism in this time and in this time in the church's history that that being a catechumen doesn't mean that that baptism is necessarily right around the corner, um, but that, that one is pursuing the Christian life in, in various ways. So often, if you remember, baptism would be delayed for, you know, towards the end of life or that sort of thing because of the great effects of baptism, of forgiving all sin and all punishment due to sin, and the different 
practice that the sacrament of penance had at the time. So St. Augustine becoming a catechumen, again, doesn't mean he's going to be baptized in a few months or that sort of thing, but that he's that he's studying the faith, pursuing the Christian life, and is in some way desiring baptism. So yeah, I don't know if you have more to say about that, Father Gregory, but this is where we find Augustine now. Yeah, and I think that he's taken a step, and it's not nothing. When we talk about RCIA in the 21st century, we identify four stages. So there's the first stage of initial inquiry, and then there's the stage of the catechumenate, and then there's a stage of further enlightenment, and then there's the stage of mystagogy after you have received the sacraments. I might have gotten some of those names just ever so slightly wrong, so my apologies. If so, for those of you who know the RCIA process... Uh, but I think there's a kind of pedagogy, as it were, to our entry into Christian life. It's not like a, a light or, you know, like a, a switch is flipped, but it's a gradual movement of the heart whereby God mediates a kind of relationship, perhaps at a natural level by the natural law, and then, you know, at a supernatural level by the infusion of faith, which faith leads us to ask for the sacraments wherein, you know, the grace of charity is bestowed. So one of the awesome things about reading the confessions is that you can see the unfolding of grace in painstaking detail as St. Augustine attempts to recount it with, you know, all of its profundity, but also in all of its detail. So, yeah. Cool. Well, there you have it. So this draws us to the end, really, of, of book five. So Augustine, from Carthage to Rome to Milan, from Faustus to St. Ambrose, we've come a long way from not being a catechumen to being a catechumen. So it sets the stage for what's to come in book six and going forward. Um, but I think at this time, we're going we're gonna to leave it there. That It wraps all things up. Any final, final thoughts on, on book five, Father Gregory? No. Look forward to chatting with you in book six. Perfect. Well, until then, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.